Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. One of the more intriguing truths about psychiatric conditions is that they are composed of mutually ongoing events from both within and without the body. This combination has often been called the biopsychosocial model. Here today to talk about one subset of these components is David Schreiderer, who splits his time from Sarasota to Roanoke. Thank you so much for being with us. Abby, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. One of the fascinating aspects of our existence is the way that the body manages stresses and how there is such an interconnection between the brain and the rest of the body. Let's begin by explaining one of the key systems. Sometimes it sounds a little complicated, but we can walk through it. And it's known as the HPA, or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. How is it related to psychiatry? It is an elaborate and eloquent set of body parts, we'll call them, that is responsible for coordinating a complex and appropriate response to either internal or external stressors. And if you think about how we were first designed, we needed to make sure we were prepared to either flee the saber-toothed tiger coming after us or turn and defend ourselves or perhaps even chase that rabbit that we want to eat tonight. All of this would require a coordinated set of processes that first starts in the hypothalamus where we see a hormone release, CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone that then activates the pituitary to release ACTH. Then we see that in turn stimulate the adrenal glands to secrete cortisol. At the same time, we're ramping up our sympathetic nervous system such that we can increase epinephrine, norepinephrine, all designed essentially to be able to shunt blood to our brain, heart, skeletal muscle, oxygen, of course, thereby. At the same time, we want to make sure we're getting the proper amount of glucose to those vital organs. And when it works, it's a beautiful thing to see. That's what prepares us to handle an acute stress. You see some other not-so-subtle changes acutely as well, namely you want to be able to fight uh, infection acutely, right, in case you get scraped up while fleeing through the jungle or through the woods or you get wounded in an attack. So you might see increase in localized, at least, immunity initially. You might also see increase in blood clotting. You don't want to bleed out acutely. And these kind of acute phase reactants as such mobilized by the liver starting from this cascade up top is an important part of how we've been able to survive as a species. It works well when the stress is limited. So there's an immediate danger to life or limb. This system goes off and then it comes back down to what we call equilibrium or homeostasis and all is well and good here in modern society. It never really comes back down to normal. You know, there's that old expression, why don't zebras get ulcers? And largely that's because their stress system goes off when the cheetah is approaching the herd, but then once the immediate danger is gone, it it relaxes and they're back to homeostasis as such. In humans, because so much of our stress is perceived or threatened, not actual, psychosocial stressors, of which we're all well aware at a clinical and personal level, that never really completely calms down. Moreover, there seem to be some things about living in modern society that make it difficult for our counter-regulatory processes, what really, from a chemical basis or level or a cellular level, aborts or stops this acute stress reaction. 
And it's possible that given modern society, not only are we activating that HP axis more, maybe it's hypersensitive, so to speak, although there's evidence to suggest it might be hypoactive in some individuals. But suffice it to say that there's something that is affecting some set of stimuli that's affecting the responsivity of the initial stress cascade. At the same time, then, there seems to be uh, an impairment of our natural mechanisms that then stop this stress cascade, that tone it down. We can't turn it off. That's exactly right. We don't turn it off or we don't turn it off completely enough. So it raises the question then, obviously there is a biological environmental stress component such as some people are just more genetically predisposed to being more nervous and anxious and concerned. But if someone is living under constant daily stress from home, from marriage, from wherever, this system keeps pumping out ultimately cortisol and other hormones. Does it exhaust itself? And is that when we begin to see the psychiatric problems? Essentially, yes. And would that be it exhausts itself in that the amount of certain neurotransmitters drop? We're not so sure. It might be that we actually end up seeing, in the case of many types of depression, for example, a situation where we have glucocorticoid receptor resistance, not unlike the insulin resistance we see in metabolic syndrome. There seems to be a similar phenomenon that occurs in certain people's HPA axis, and that is increased cortisol keeps cranking because of this ongoing set of stressors, and then you end up seeing a glucocorticoid receptor resistance or downregulation. The cortisol, keep in mind, while it's part of the initial stress response, it's actually one of the main mechanisms by which we turn the thing off high-dose cortisol being very immune suppressant, for example. We use that strategy all the time in certain disease states. And it turns out that while it may look as though we have increased cortisol in certain types of depression, at the same time, we really have low glucocorticoid level of activity because of the receptor site distance. So it really becomes very complicated very quickly. For those of us who are a little bit older, we'll remember not too many years ago for the dexamethasone suppression test to measure cortisol to see if you were actually endogenously or biochemically depressed. I guess we don't use that much anymore. We do not. It's probably not nearly as useful, at least clinically, as we once hoped it would be. When all this happens, are there real changes in the hypothalamus in the pituitary and the adrenal, do these organs, and people will sometimes hear that they burn out, they can't rise to the level of the stresses, and that can produce anxiety and depression. I, I know this is a very broad brush question, but people want to know, they got the HPA access, it seems to be part of our survival mechanism. Why hasn't nature figured out a way to help us survive more, or is that what we try to do with psychiatric medications, to buffer the HPA axis abnormality. You hit upon, I think, some of the key points and things we wrestle with clinically every single day, and, and that is why can't we get more people more better? And what are we missing, in other words? And I think that the longer the HP axis is revved and kind of out of control and not allowed to come back to a, a homeostatic level, then I think the greater the risk for degenerative changes in the brain and the body. That's where probably the progressive nature of depression and mental illness comes into play, the old kindling notion that, you know, the more episodes you have, the more you will have. One of the greatest predictors of will you get sick again from a psychiatric standpoint is how many times have you been sick before? How many episodes have you had before? And this fits nicely with the notion that depression is a degenerative process and a, and a progressive illness as well, as are so many other mental illnesses. 
where we particularly see problems has to do with as soon as we're stressed, we stop converting tryptophan all the way over to serotonin, for example, because of we experience upregulation of a certain enzyme called IDO, indolamine-2,3-dioxygenase, no reason to remember that now, although it's getting a lot of publicity lately. Via that upregulation of that enzyme, we start converting tryptophan over to a cascade of events and, and byproducts called tricats, tryptophan catabolites, ultimately ending up in the formation of quinolinic acid, which turns out to be a very brain-toxic chemical through the NMDA receptor. That's probably one of the mechanisms by which many of our CNS processes or, or pathologies, including depression, begin to rot the brain, particularly toxic to the glial cells. But we see volumetric changes in, in key prefrontal cortical areas as well as certain deep limbic structures, and a lot of that's going to be due to glutamate mediated excitotoxicity and where some of that excess glutamate is coming from has to do with these tricat metabolites that come from us breaking down tryptophan in a different pathway than what would be normal under physiologic circumstances on over to serotonin and then melatonin. Not only can that hurt us from a glutamate toxic kind of perspective, but if we're not converting tryptophan on over to serotonin, we soon start to see where now we're serotonin deficient, right? One of the leading theories behind what drives at least certain symptoms of depression. And at the same time, we're creating these brain toxic chemicals that really end up shrinking neurons and, and just outright killing glial cells. So if I can be overly simplistic, perhaps, when we give an antidepressant and we use the very common notion that we're restoring the chemical imbalance, we're actually trying to interfere with this very complex cascade that turns out to be toxic for the brain, and we're undoing the toxicity of these abnormal circuitry. It, it's fascinating, but it shows, again, the complexity of what's going on here. Absolutely. From a clinical perspective, is is truly daunting, although I think there are more and more data out there that are leading the way in terms of what we might consider, in addition to medications, for example. One of the things that's also part of this is that something starts in the brain, it ends up down in the adrenals, the adrenals then distribute the hormones throughout the body. I mean, cortisol goes not only to back up to the hypothalamus, but it goes to every joint and every piece of tissue in the body. What happens particularly in the stomach and in the gut? We call this the enteric system. Is there an association between hyperactivity of the HPA and what we see in the stomach making the gut happy? Right. Do you have the guts to be happy, a term I borrowed from Michael Ash, who's an expert in this area of gut-brain axis. This is where it really gets fun and interesting, but even more complicated, and it's bi-directional. So it can start in the gut and go to the brain, or it can start in the brain and go to the gut. You know the old expression, your current symptoms can be explained either by someone you met or something you ate. And I think that really it gets down to uh, psychosocial antigens and perhaps microbial antigens, all leading to a state of intolerance, so to speak, that leads to a lot of our physical as well as psychiatric symptoms. As soon as the HPA axis gets activated by a psychosocial stressor, for example, we're in direct communication with the gut. What we end up seeing then is a significant increase in certain markers of inflammation, particularly the cytokines. There's a whole theory out there, the cytokine theory of depression. And what we see is increases in interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interferon gamma, 
And, and what happens then is these markers of inflammation drive a lot of the very common symptoms associated with depression, the, the old sickness behavior, so to speak. So the malaise and the anhedonia to some degree, perhaps even the suicidality, who knows, but certainly the fatigue, the isolation, the interpersonal isolation, treatment resistance. So anytime these days I see somebody that hasn't responded to antidepressants, although antidepressants, who knew, also are anti-inflammatory agents. We have a lot of data that demonstrates antidepressants in addition to just messing with neurotransmitter amounts and receptor sites and reuptake pumps and whatnot. They also turn out to decrease directly markers of inflammation. So that may be one of the mechanisms by which our antidepressants are working is actually toning down some of this inflammation that we see generally generated from the gut. You know, one of the reasons we think that we have more depression and more autoimmune illness and more allergic illness in modern society has to do with we've lost communication with what's now being called in the literature old friends. And these would be microorganisms that for millions of years have accompanied us on our journeys, we humans now, and we no longer have them available to us. And that's because of some of the changes in modern life, right? Diet, xenobiotics and xenoestrogens, ongoing levels of stress, Early life events, here's something that I think a lot of us don't know, that what happens to you in utero and early in life determines for all time possibly not only your HPA axis set point, whether it's going to be hypo or hyperactive, but at the same time, it really determines the amount and the types of bacteria that you are going to carry around with you for the rest of your life. It turns out that the gut that enteric nervous system that you talk about is by far the principal immune organ in our bodies. You know, it, from just an antigenic exposure perspective, our gut handles more immune information in a single day with three meals at it than the rest of our body does in an entire lifetime. Why that's significant is because it's commensal old friend microbiota that have helped via formation of certain anti-inflammatory cytokines and development of regulatory T-cells, that's what has helped us in the past turn off the stress reaction. And because we don't have that any longer, this is simplistic now, but because we, we don't have those relationships with those old bacterial friends, we seem to live with a low-grade inflammation in modern society that translates based on your genetic loading either into depression or type 1 diabetes or asthma and other allergic types of things or autoimmune illness. This is so fascinating because how many times do we hear the arguments a baby who is breastfed has a better chance than a bottle-fed baby? It may not be 100% sure, but it leads to what you're saying. And all of our diets and all the artificial stuff that we put into our food and the artificial sweeteners and preservatives, you know, maybe all this discussion has some more grounding to it than um, we give credit for. Uh, absolutely. We probably still to this day misunderestimate, to quote, I believe, one of our George Bushes, the impact of our guts on our brain health. I think that's one of the reasons clinically I do so much preaching of nutrition and activity and exercise and getting out in the sun, your vitamin D. You know, one of the most anti-inflammatory things you can ever do for yourself is to sleep eight hours. We certainly prescribe a lot of medications, and I believe in that. Obviously, you know that, right? That's part of our arsenal to wage battle against some of our worst illnesses. 
at the same time, I tend to really spend a lot of time every visit with all of my folks, review what they're eating, how much they're sleeping, how much activity and movement they're getting. Also looking relentless for signs of, of inflammation that we're not addressing. One of my friends is a sleep doctor, and he and I have informally spoken because he doesn't have any hard data per se, but he is very concerned about the number of times that people sleep with their TV sets on. It's just enough light to throw the melatonin system off. Isn't that true? And he's very concerned about people who wake up in the middle of the night and check their emails. He says that is enough light to throw off the melatonin system. But, you know, as you're talking, you throw me back in another direction as well. And maybe one of the reasons that verbal therapies, cognitive therapies are so helpful is that they reduce the environmental stress. And that in turn gets to the hypothalamus, which then turns off, or, or shall we say, it's never going to be turned off. It gets to the hypothalamus where it tones down the stress levels. Everything goes back into a balance. And so there is the power and mechanism of verbal therapy. And if you add the pharmacologic therapy, we have some very powerful tools. You bet. We've got to use them all, though. And I love psychotherapy, the verbal therapies. We know that they increase BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's something that in states of inflammation is decreased. We, are, we know that BDNF is very important for nourishing brain cells. We also have glial-derived neurotrophic factor, which is important for the survival and, and health of our glial cells. And psychotherapy increases that. We also know that Tai Chi does certain types of exercise, yoga, relaxation therapy, meditation, prayer, all of these things are very good for decreasing cortisol levels, decreasing other stress hormones, increasing activity, brain activity in, in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We also know that these very things also help reduce pro-inflammatory cytokines. That seems to be what's driving some of this chronic inflammation that we're seeing so pervasively in modern societies worldwide. It makes me lean in the direction that the more that we actually know about the specific physiology and the biochemistry of this, the more we, we begin to realize that much of our inventions are really very simple. Yes. I had a teacher who once called this the flow of thought. Where does a thought start in the brain? What organs does it go through and how is it ultimately manifested? And we have to control the flow of thought and we have to control the devices which carry that thought, which are all the inflammatory cytokines and neurotransmitters and the whole host of things. Beautifully complex, amazing that it works when it's balanced. Right. Amazing. The brain and the gut are intimately related. Huge, 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 huge. David Scheiderer is a psychiatrist who spends time both in Virginia and in Florida, and I thank you so much for taking us on a brief tour of a very complex but critically important set of notions that ultimately will better help us treat people and ourselves as we go through life and meet all the stresses there that are attached there too. David, thank you so much. Abby, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it.